we were just talking about um having like ptsd from the sound that microsoft teams makes ah luckily like, i've been it is a zoom girl for a long time nice will you I make sound for me oh we were just talking about this where it's like you have to try and recall it because they all sound the same it's like bing bing boom 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 bing bing yeah something like, like that. that yeah and like <laughs> If it's an unscheduled call for me, it's like, I'll hear it go off. And it's like, it's on my phone. It's on my computer. And it's like, both of them are going off. And I'll just be like, both. Yeah. it always goes off on both, but they're not synced. Oh, right. And so, so I'm just like, cussing and grumbling, like, who is this person? Yeah. We're off tempo. Yeah. I know it's that way when I get a call and it rings on my computer, oh. my cell phone, my watch, and, and it's spam. I don't even want to know, but it's like all systems alert. Spam is calling you. You should answer. Nah, very, don't think yeah. Oh, my God. Can you hear the very loud toy that Owen has just decided to play with? I can't hear it. Okay, good, because it's very loud. <laughs> no, I hear like a faint thud, but... That's what, um... yeah, he's chewing a... Uh, Hard. He's chewing a cow metacarpal on my hardwood floor. So, <laughs> so he's smashing it into the ground. Yeah. No, your uh your microphone's doing a really good job of like noise right. canceling. You've got some questions. Got it all. You're feeling stressed, man. Got it all. Put on your GPS and got it all. I'm gonna turn something that's glistening down low and listen to Tia, Katie, Chris, and Kirsten. You should go to yeah, I think it's been like 10 months since the last time we did an episode. So we're a little rusty, but also like, I, was I, I mean, you've been, that? I, don't know if I, I think you that. were on the last one, Elliot. Yeah. You oh, were yeah, the holiday one. Yes, I was. <laughs> yeah. And so we never settled into like a firm open for the show ever. Like in the years that we've been running this thing, it's just like uh cold open, whatever. Um, and so I don't know. So I, I guess here we go. But maybe um, it's a compilation of dog to dog toy noises. Every single toy he has under my desk right now is like hard. It's like all bones and like very hard yeah. <laughs> Why? I have Artie sound asleep on my feet under the desk right now. Okay. Well, yeah. So let's do some quick intros. Um for since it has been a while since we've done the podcast we may as well reintroduce ourselves uh yeah. elliot uh elliot you want to introduce yourself first uh yeah i'm elliot helmer um oh god i don't know what to introduce myself as uh phd candidate at washington state university i am well, the co-host of the podcast now uh so yeah, I don't know. That's all I got. Yeah, good enough. Uh, <laughs> I'm Chris Sims, uh, also co-host of this podcast. Uh, I'm a cultural resources archaeologist. Um, and uh, yeah, so we uh, it's been a while since we've done this episode, and I happen to be at the annual ACRA conference, and I met Lauren Jensen here. So Lauren, do you want to um, give us a quick intro on you too? Sure. Uh, so I'm Lauren Jensen. I'm a what you would call a visitor experience specialist, uh, meaning I've worked with 
museums and historic sites for a number of years, advising them on different ways to engage visitors, uh, to get them excited and, and coming to sites to learn about educational materials. Um, so we try to make it super, super fun. My current role, uh, I'm uh, at Art Glass, which is an augmented reality software uh, startup. Uh, it can seem pretty odd to think of how does that intersect with the world of archaeology and cultural resource management, but I actually went to Accra to explore that very topic, like do these things make sense together? And they actually kind of really, really do. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. So uh, when I met you at Accra, I was immediately like, oh, my God, I can't believe I finally get to see augmented reality in person. And it's something that I've heard a lot of people talk about. And, and I myself have talked on several podcast episodes about it. Um, I used to I used to be a co-host on a podcast called Archaeotech. And, um, you know, we explored like emerging technology in archaeology and you know, like years and years ago, we would talk about augmented reality in archaeology as a hypothetical, like, oh, wouldn't it be neat if this thing could be used for archaeology? And so when I when I met you and got to demo the art glass product and, you know, put the glasses on on my face and and, uh, you know, you had the landscape set up. And so like I'm standing there in the conference hall and I put the glasses on. And as I turn around, I'm looking around the landscape and it's, you know, like moving around. It blew my mind. It was so cool uh, to like have an immersive experience on, on this virtual landscape. And the resolution was amazing too. Like it looked good. Like it, it wasn't like, you know, like Minecraft kind of like blocky, you know, digital pixelated, uh, images. It was like high resolution images. So I, I, it was like really cool. And so now we're at this point now where it's, uh, it's not hypothetical anymore. Like, like you were talking about, like you've, you've been doing this with this product and, um, now it's just like, where else can you put the, the product? So, um, in terms of like kind of catching up, uh, any listeners who aren't familiar with art glass, um, you want to describe kind of what the product is and, and like what you what sort of projects you've been doing with that? Sure. So Art Glass, um, we're a, a small technology company that was founded by culturalists, historians, people from within the cultural sector, as well as technologists. And we actually got our start in Italy, uh, where there's some incredible uh, ancient history. Um, so we started off as a software that we built proprietarily in-house. Um, that was used to augment sites like ancient Pompeii and Herculaneum, uh, ancient battlefields. Um, but we were previously doing projects on behalf of clients. We were doing these high-end projects that we designed ourselves. What's new for Art Glass is um, just in the past year, we've decided to take the software that we've built and make it available for museums and what I'm calling creators themselves to use. So anyone who's a partner to a historic site can use this software themselves to build an augmented reality experience for the public to engage with. Um, so that's the part that's very uh, new to the industry. Previously, to make an AR experience, you needed to be a coder. You needed to use tools like Unity um, that are, are really complicated, and it just wasn't accessible. Uh, and even if you paid someone else to do it, it was going to cost a boatload. So yeah. that's a problem that we sought, uh, uh, sought out to solve. And I like to say we're democratizing the AR creation process 
trying to make it so not just the biggest sites, but even the smallest local historic cemeteries, local city walking tours, it can be accessible for everyone. That is so cool. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned uh, you wanted me to get into a couple projects that we've been working on recently. Mm -hmm. So um, aside from our Italian projects in the U.S., there's several sites where we had large deployments like Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. uh, Mount Vernon, that's George Washington's historic presidential home in Highland. Um, and then some of our newest sites that, that are using art glass themselves are actually the Denver Art Museum. They're making a scavenger hunt for young children uh, called the Art Venture. Um, and it's it's super cool. If you haven't been to the Denver Art Museum, they just in the past couple of years reopened their uh, a wing of their museum. It's like seven floors with uh, new modern and, and ancient indigenous collections. I really love the modern indigenous art that's there, though. Um, so they're using AR for kids to dive into the art. Uh, and let's see what else. We are also working with a historic home of uh, the author Flannery O'Connor in South Georgia in Macon. Um, so Southern Gothic author Flannery O'Connor, uh, yeah. Andalusia Farm. And it's a part of the um, uh, Georgia State College University um, Historic Homes Collection. And yeah, we're partnering with them to actually make the uh, grounds more exciting for visitors. Like when you go inside the home, it's still really, really well preserved. Uh, they've put things in place that look like it's still being lived in. Um, but the property is on 544 acres. And what do you do to get people to explore the other barns and tenant homes and other structures that are on the site where other people lived that were integral to Flannery's life uh, and, and life in South Georgia and getting more into historic preservation without sending them into the actual dilapidated barns, which <laughs> yeah. a legal yeah. life. <laughs> um, not, not ideal not not ideal so with ar you know they can see what's inside of there they can get that that curious itch scratched in a in a safe way uh and get some some awesome historic preservation knowledge along the way i am really into landscapes sort of as a archaeological topic and the importance of landscapes. So I think that's really interesting and, and important for those kinds of historical sites, like like historic houses. Like you would say in this case, Plenty O'Connor's house is on this big landscape and it's a big field that you can go ahead and put AR on top of. But my mind immediately also jumped to those like historic houses that you see sometimes that are like a pocket, like in the middle of downtown Los Angeles and like everything around it is like just city block and like strip malls and stuff and being able to uh recreate sort of the landscape in those situations as well where like because that is such an important part right of the significance and history and experience of that place would have been its setting in like in like los angeles of the 1800s and not like 2023 you know and I think that that is really important not only because it's like interesting for like you know people to experience in like sort of museum settings but also I feel like for communicating to those visitors that landscape is part of the history like that these sites are not isolated so I think that it sort of have this potential for this dual engagement education that works like sort of really in tandem, which I think is really interesting. 
Um, yeah, I would love to see, especially also because I, it offers that to, it offers the opportunity to show that landscape even to, to every setting, you know, like you said, like it has that accessibility. So even places that are like isolated in cities and stuff like that have the ability to communicate that element of the historic site, which I think is really exciting. Absolutely. Yeah, more than likely, there is a history to every single place that we look at. And what makes it really interesting to the public typically is the human connection. What are the human stories? And so I love AR as a medium for tying together those cognitive and emotional uh, goals that you, you want visitors to understand. Because um, it can be sometimes hard once you become an academic and you're so specialized to communicate why an object or why a certain like scientific finding is so exciting to the public. Um, mm -hmm. Just the general population, to quote one of your previous episodes, Elliot, uh, the what is it? The uninformed and disengaged something. Yes. Like yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, why was this important? What happened here? And for most people, it's that's going to become real for them when you can tie it to who, even mm -hmm. if it's still in an abstract sense. Um, mm -hmm. You know, who was the group that was here? What might have they been like? What was their life like? How was that similar to my life? Um, and that's how we can get people caring about the sort of issues that that CRM firms and archaeologists are often looking into, um, unless we know why we should preserve history it's it's hard to get people all, all riled up about preserving buildings and and doing digs and that sort of thing yeah it's that's so important that you you highlight that because it engages people's imaginations and it like you you talked about how it's an abstraction you know for people who aren't working in in heritage um, a lot of things about heritage is just abstract and, and academic to them. And, and it's hard for them to really kind of like wrap their heads around like, well, why do we care about this old building? Or like, why do we care about this particular spot on the landscape? Um, and, you know, Art Glass helps people do that by, you know, taking that abstraction away and putting them physically, like kind of physically into that space and being able to engage their imagination so that they can see it and be like, oh, wow, like this is what it would have looked like. This is kind of what it would have been to experience this place in this particular setting. I also think that there's a lot of potential for not just imagining the, the setting and engaging with people in that way, but also communicating the these kinds of sites that don't translate uh, tangibly to people in the present. Like I'm thinking we've been talking a lot about like historic homes and stuff like that. Um, but I um, work mostly with indigenous pre-contact heritage. And there's a lot of like kinds of sites and kinds of things that when you're trying to explain to the public, they don't have that um, modern touchstone, you know, like they can picture a historic house, but if you ask them to like picture what like a shell mound looked like in the Bay Area, it's really, really hard to visualize that, especially when like you try to describe it to them with words, you're like, well, it's a big pile of shellfish. It's a big, big <laughs> pile of shellfish. And, and when we say big, we're, we're, we mean big. really big. Really you know, big. Huge. And red lobster. And <laughs> yeah. And you know, like there's this, there's like a 
two or three old grainy black and white photos of like the Emeryville Shell Mound, which is a really famous Shell Mound site, which is now under a mall. Um, but before it was under a mall, there's these grainy photos where it's like, oh, I can kind of see a person so you can understand the scale of the person next to it. But how cool would it be to be able to understand it, but you're the person and be able to like appreciate the scale of it? Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like it's that disengaged and um, disinterested public, right? Like how do you get them it like why does this shell matter? Like, why did this, it's just shellfish. It's just trash. I don't like what was important about this and being able to give them that experience. So you can like see for yourself, you know, this is why, like, this is look at this big significant thing and uh, make a connection between that and the archaeological material that we have. Um, so I think especially for those kinds of pre-contact sites that just don't have a tangible analog for people would be just a really interesting way to use this. Although, of course, that means being able to, unlike looking at like a historic house and like visual, like being able to augment reality over like that barn that's collapsed and now it's a complete barn trying to like reconstruct these like landscapes entirely is i don't know is that like a is that much more difficult or is there a difference in like the sort of more augmenting reality versus like when does it become fully like virtual reality like you're building it up from scratch like where's sort of the line there that's such a good question so that's that's when we usually start almost all of our conversations about AR with uh, is what's the difference between AR and VR? Because to the general public, we lump them in together so often. Um, And uh, just to set the record straight a little bit, so virtual reality, you're cut off completely from what's around you. Um, You can't see the people that you're with. You can't see the setting that you're in. uh, So you can't engage in the collections, the landscape, or the social experience where you are. But with augmented reality, it's meant to be a place-based experience. Um, where you can still be social with others, you're engaging with where you are physically, but it's adding those new layers of digital context, uh, which can be video, 3D objects, audio, it can be so many different things. Um, And that is a great question though. How are people reconstructing things that are no longer there? Um, And that is tricky. There's entire professions now dedicated to that sort of thing. So a lot of um, uh, 3D designers and digital designers now specialize in that sort of thing and reconstructing uh, a building based on either the knowledge they can get from uh, uh, archaeologists, historic preservationists, or photographs, or what would have been similar for the time period. Um, What's really neat that I'm seeing is how the innovations in open source technology and AI are playing into those questions and conversations where now, you know, you could uh, ask the Internet, essentially, what might a building in 1500 in Spain have looked like? And it can show you something. Now you want to fact check it. And that's where Mm -hmm. I want to see the technology keep going is I 
am highly dubious of historic accuracy of what it is. <laughs> highly, but it's a starting point. It gives you yeah. a little something to start with. And from there, there's open source tools uh, where many people who are making these 3D models are sharing them for others to use. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. Um, so where we're kind of going with our product essentially is we want people to be able to pull in assets, you know, 3D reconstructions, so on and so forth, that they've gotten from anywhere into the tool to make these tours um, so that every single person isn't reinventing the wheel from scratch, essentially. My mind is spinning right now. I'm like, yeah, I'm just like, so, so many, many ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, uh, trying to think of something to say. That's, I'm yeah. trying to think of something to say that's not just me, like, describing all of the different augmented reality ideas I have now. <laughs> like, well, there's not really a question in there, but I've got some ideas. Yeah. <laughs> I do um, have a question for you, Lauren. Um, so you mentioned, you know, working with the interested public. Uh, what kind of feedback have you had from any sort of stakeholders, whether that's, um, you know, clients or the public or people who have used Art Glass? Um, what what kind of feedback have you had? Like, share some positive experiences. Absolutely. Um, the the feedback has been really incredible. But first, I'll actually start with the data because the data is the fun part. Um, you know, I can share a couple of positive reviews, but we wanted to actually set out to prove or disprove a theory um, that many people have about new technologies like AR, which is that well, younger people are going to be into it, but what about older folks? Is this something they're actually going to want to use, feel comfortable using? So we've studied uh, the uh, what we call the take-up rate, so people who opt into these experiences at a lot of our different sites, both in the U.S. and Italy, and what we found is that uh, both the under 40 crowd and the above 40 crowd both choose to take AR experiences at about the same rate. We were really happily surprised by that. When we dug a little deeper, though, they have different reasons for why they choose to do the AR tour. So the younger folks, they're attracted to the technology itself, especially if it's the AR glasses. They've never tried that. They want to try it. It seems cool. And then the edu educational content is a bonus. The older crowd, though, tends to be what you call in the museum industry your divers, people who want to go really deep with the content. They could stay there for hours. So they're like, well, if this is the avenue to get that additional information, okay, I'll do it. And then they end up really <laughs> enjoying it. Because um, it can essentially be like a little TV screen uh, mm -hmm. in front of your eyes augmenting what you're looking at. And Everyone loves TV. So. <laughs> <laughs> TV you can take everywhere, but it yeah. actually has a purpose behind it. So um, a couple of the the great pieces of feedback that, that we've received that were the most meaningful to us actually came from a tour we did um, in our own headquarters city of Richmond, Virginia, um, back in you know 2020, the George Floyd protests. Uh, and people were calling for enrichment, Confederate monuments to be taken down. Um, this was really a time of ra uh, racial reckoning. Mm -hmm. And our boss saw, said, what can we do to help with this with what our special skill set is? So what we decided to do is create a tour of Monument Avenue, where there was the statue of General you know, e Robert E. Lee um, and document 
why this statue is here, document the public process uh, and show how it had been graffitied over the years, and then document the public process of it being taken down and removed. And what's so interesting is I've talked to other cities. It was mind boggling for me to find out there's Confederate statues even in California. I'm like, how did they get out there? There's, I know how they got out there. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the question is though, how do we remove these and like in what way? Not just how do we take them down, but do we make it a secret? Do we do it in under the cover of night when no one is looking? Do we announce it beforehand? Um, that's what some other cities have done. But in Richmond, they decided to let this be a public process and did it during the day. And so we took video that was captured of the celebration of the community of this thing being taken down. We used archival images of it and created a tour that explains all about Monument Avenue, why it was there and why we need to remember it. Because the crazy thing is, um, when I first went to Monument Avenue, there was just the pedestal. The statue itself was already gone, but the pedestal was still there. So it was a reminder and uh -huh. there were QR codes on the ground. Um, but the next time, a couple months later, when I went to Richmond, even the pedestal was gone. It had been paved over. If you didn't know where you were, you would never have known that there was a Confederate monument in the middle of this residential district for you know decades and decades. And it's great that we've kind of gotten rid of that history, but we need to still remember it or else we lose all of the lessons that we need to be learning from that. So anyway, long story short, we made a tour about Monument Avenue and made it uh, available to the public. And some of the, the comments we got were just great. It was a guided tour that now the Valentine Museum puts on. Uh, and people were saying to us, okay, this was a 40 minute experience, but I stayed for two hours because it encouraged dialogue amongst the groups. It encouraged intergenerational dialogue, dialogue with the, um, the guide. And that's what makes me happiest. And that's when I feel an AR um, experience is successful, when it makes you want to learn more. You're no longer a passive recipient of information, um, but it's now made its way into your own life, your own conversations. And it's more than likely going to be something you bring home with you and bring back to the communities that you're in. Um, so that's some of the best feedback that, that we ever got was just people being like, I didn't know any of this. I'm so glad I know. And I want to do better now that I know more and understand this history. That is really cool. And that's a great example because it's such a like a a painful moment in, you know, our our very recent history, but also in in the, you know, deeper history of, you know, the Civil War. And um, I was reading somewhere that I can't remember if it was those monuments on Monument Avenue, but um, a lot of the Confederate monuments kind of around the country didn't come into place until the civil rights movement it was kind of like a reaction to the civil rights movement um which also kind of makes that like a, a very painful part of of that history you know it's it's like a this tension this racial tension over you know the monuments and like what they mean and that's cool that you had video of the the event of removing these and you know like people celebrating their removal you know it's it's like it adds a, a whole different layer of context to the the monument and like you were saying now it's just paved over you wouldn't even know it was there if not for the ability to have um an augmented reality experience of that 
Yeah, I think that this that you've sort of resolved one of those debates that's just that was always just spiraling when all of those um all those monuments were in the public view this idea of like well if we don't leave it up how will we learn from our history we're keep leaving it up as like a warning da, da, da. and having to balance that with the people who were like well it's traumatizing and I don't want to fucking see it in my city and the and being able to sort of resolve both of those issues like yeah they it shouldn't be up we shouldn't be looking at it but there is still a lesson to be learned and being able to communicate the parts of that lesson that you don't get when it's just the statue there where it can be very easily misconstrued as well maybe they support robert e lee how would they how would anybody make that misinterpretation of leaving the statue up um but when you do this your it sounds like your tour of monument um alley really allows you to do that like okay but this is when it actually was being constructed like uh like I, again i don't know but this uh, this particular Confederate statue, but like Chris said, that a lot of them were being built long, long after the Civil War. They had nothing to do with it, and being exactly. able to, you know, communicate that history alongside, like the the history of the Confederacy, alongside of the uh, protests that got them taken down, and being able to communicate the, all those different scales of history with um, being with augmented reality. I think. Uh, has a lot of potential um, because it recognizes sort of the ongoing process of placemaking and the ongoing process of building heritage in a way that you don't get from a static display like a statue. Um, you know, a, a statue commemorating something good or something bad. Like you just, you don't get that kind of um, time depth with a static statue. Exactly. And then when you can have digital context, you could have the whole timeline literally flash before your eyes while looking at the same place. So it's actually yeah. great for also places that don't have the physical real estate to literally have an entire timeline and yeah. <laughs> read that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I want to make sure that I, I give credit where credit's due. Um, so the Monument Avenue tour was made before I joined the organization. And that project was led primarily by our vice president, uh, Lexi Cleveland, who is also an American historian and just a, a really cool individual. So if you're ever in uh, Richmond, make sure to, to check that out. Nice. I'm taking notes real quick. Uh, <laughs> So Lauren, earlier you talked about um, Art Glass as a tool for democratizing AR and democratizing, um, you know, the experience of of heritage. Um, could you kind of go into a little bit more of that on on like kind of how Art Glass is democratizing AR? Absolutely. Um, so what we have. First, I'll start with the boring stuff. So it's a software that you can have a subscription to or a license, um, but anyone can use it. You don't have to be the government of San Francisco, the official so-and-so of such and such. Anyone can use this software. And while I, there's a ton of value in you know a museum having an official tour, a historic site having an official tour, it doesn't have to be that. 
that. Um, you can have an unofficial tour and be an independent creator creating these AR experiences. And when you open up that possibility, um, you allow room for non-dominant narratives to take space, for uh, more subversive questions to be put out there, for more traditions and, and things that we take for granted to be questioned. And sometimes our institutions are able to do some of those things, but a lot of the time they're a little handcuffed by bureaucracy. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where do they get funding? You can't cr bite the hand that feeds you, so on and so forth. Um, so I, I love that uh, also in democratizing it, that it's not just people who are coders who can make these experiences anymore. So there was kind of that dual level of um, people AR being inaccessible to people. Right. Like if you're not with an official institution with a huge budget and or you're not a developer who can do it yourself. And we've taken away both of those things. Um, that being said, uh, our glass tour builder is still great for those both of those groups of people. But our passion really comes from uplifting those non-dominant narratives, telling the stories that weren't in our textbooks, that still aren't being told in our schools um, by, with and from the communities that they are about. So that's what we like to do. That is very cool. My blow in your mind. <laughs> I can see Elliot's gears turning. Elliot does a lot of work with um, uh, kind of exactly that, like non-dominant narratives. Um, you know, you've been, Elliot, you've been working on, um, you know, the labor movements in archaeology for one. Um and then a lot of the work that you do with, um, you know, indigenous pre-contact or even post-contact is, um, you know, looking at looking at indigenous culture from a perspective of like, it is a stateless, non-hierarchical society. And that doesn't match a lot of the narratives of like colonial power and, um, you know, so on and so forth. Um, yeah, thank you for thank you for reminding me what it is that I do because now I have two <laughs> thoughts. Um, uh, well, so one of one thing that I was that I've been sort of rolling around in my head. You mentioned a while back this idea of the augmented reality um, allowing you to have those relationships, and that one of the um, big positives of Monument Avenue was that people were able to connect and they stayed a lot longer and they were a lot more engaged with the other people around them. And I think that that's really important for if we are trying to, uh, if this if the intention is for this software to be used for these uh, historically uh, silenced communities to be constructing and communicating their own heritage, relationships and community are such a huge part of uh, like indigenous communities that I think that the idea that you can, the augmented reality doesn't limit it. It's not, you're not in your own little visual experience. You are being able to engage with the people around you and being able to uh, connect with the community and not be totally closed off from it. Um, and I think that in addition to the like democratization, like being a huge, um, a huge reason that this has a lot of potential for indigenous heritage specifically, but also I think the fact that it allows for those relationships and sort of that's one of the benefits of it is that that's what distinguishes it 
um, from like a v more VR experience. I think that that uh, has a lot of potential, um, especially like in terms of, again, sort of returning to this I idea of Monument Avenue and um, you mentioned like, why are there Confederate statues in California? Well, the, the other thing that we have in California is um, statues of uh, Junipero Serra and other um, padres from the mission era. And we had a similar, there's a lot of similar experiences with those being torn down. And so I see a lot of potential there, but also um, for visualizing these mission landscapes. And especially because the the way that the missions are still being interpreted, like the people who run them, it's still very associated with the Catholic Church. It very, it, you know, they've made a lot of strides and they have a lot of indigenous input on their um, heritage board. But, you know, there's that aspect of the of missions that's not part of the building. You know, where what's around it, where like the uh, the indigenous homestead, the indigenous gardens, all of these things surrounding the mission that are all a part of that. And I think that, you know, you mentioned this idea that like a lot of the times institutions um, can't like can't quite get to where they want because of like bureaucracy um, and funding and stuff. But also, I think that there there are institutions that very much are tr aren't trying <laughs> they are not invested in necessarily uh changing the way that they are communicating uh, a certain past to the public um and you know past is and heritage is something that is so politically salient and especially when you can get that experience and so i think being able to sort of take away the the ability um i mean you you've said it already like democratize like the ability to communicate those experiences um i think is really important because it's not just that a lot of institutions can't it's that a lot are not interested <laughs> and yeah. uh i i think that that offers uh a lot of a lot of potential for uh subversion which i think is really uh exciting Absolutely. And even within the, the staff of many of these sites, you know, there's going to be a lot of different people working there. So there's always going to be people that do want to be telling those stories. And maybe even the director themselves wants to be telling those stories, but everything's political always. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, having digital storytelling, I feel like you have a little more leeway than when you have a giant printed sign on the wall that everyone can see. It's a mm -hmm. digital experience. You could actually have an A, B, C, and D version of the experience available. Um, one that's for kids, one's for families, one maybe is for the person you don't, and one's the more subversive tour. Like you could yeah. have these different options without having to remodel your space every time a visitor with a different interest comes in. So that, that's what I really love. And I just do want to shout out to the museum community and the people within it that are fighting the good fight and doing what they can to change systems. Cause I know there's, yeah. there's, they're doing it. And yeah. I think that, that idea of oh, not having to change your space is also really great because, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of museums are doing stuff like, you know, let's say like plantation museums in the South are now like reconstructing like slave quarters and stuff, but not every like plantation historic house has the funding 
to actually like reconstruct, like physically reconstruct those things, especially like if they've lost all of the land around that historic site that where those things were. Mm -hmm. And and this takes away that funding barrier so that even the like less funded uh, sites can still communicate that history pretty much in the same way that uh, the more the better funded sites are, except that they don't have to physically like reconstruct anything. Exactly. And it's something they can build upon over time, change over time, iterate. Um, that's something I really love, too, because I don't think that most of us, what we made five years ago, we would want to still have in place now. But that's often what museums and historic sites get stuck for. Whatever mm -hmm. it is that they invest in is going to be in place for 20 plus years. But when it's something digital that's cloud based and you can change it and it can grow with you, maybe you start off and all you have is an intro video uh, to the gallery. That's OK. And then next year you can do a little more and the next month do a little more. Um, I, I think that's really powerful too. It doesn't have to be one and done giant every time. Well, and we're always learning new things too about the past. Like we're constantly reworking our understanding of the past. So, you know, you can improve the experience in terms of like what options there are, like you were describing, but also like you need to be able to update a lot of information. And you see that all the time in museums or it's like, like, we've we've come up with like three different theories since the theory that was printed out on this like museum placard and like i mean they're just they don't have the funding or the resources to be like changing those all the time and uh this offers an opportunity to like stay up with science you know stay on the cutting edge and also recognize that science is a process that is ongoing um which i yeah. think is really important to communicate to the public this I'm idea that it is it isn't fixed. Yeah. I'm now questioning the validity of the phrase, the past is the past. I'm like, what? that isn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is, it's uh, also the present and the future. Not, might not be. Um, yeah. But to your point, though, the other part I love about um, digital is it makes experiences so much more accessible for a wider number of people in so many different regards. Mm -hmm. So when you have an item on view and then a wall label, most of the time it's only going to be in one language. And there's a lot of institutions out there, they're now doing dual languages. Maybe they're doing uh, wall labels in English and Spanish mm -hmm. or some other language but in the u.s predominantly everything is still in one language and you would have to be able to read and you would have to be able to read up close i can't read that thing from 10 feet back um and it just doesn't take into account multiple languages as well as multiple learning styles so that's what i really love about um digital um is that it can appeal to people that are more visual thinkers that are auditory when you give them all of the different options where they can see something hear something uh feel like they're interacting with it the those experiences are going to stick with them so much better and i feel like it's just incredibly more um accessible for everyone and captions and transcriptions everywhere big fan yeah it adds accessibility to the whole experience yeah that's great well, and, and go ahead i was gonna say it also adds accessibility in that like we've been talking a lot about like going to places but you also mentioned like way up at the top the like 3d objects and that like offers an opportunity for people who can't physically get to a museum either because they are disabled and they can't go to a museum or they just live in a rural, rural community and don't have like access to museums, being able to still engage with that history digitally, um, 
I think is really, which is a, is a great opportunity, especially because um, a lot of those rural communities are the, are like a lot of uh, native communities are really indigenous or sorry, indigenous communities are really rural, God. Um, and um, so I think that that also has a, a, an ability to bring the museum to people, which I think is really cool. And Absolutely. it just, you know, extends the museum experience for everybody. Absolutely. And can help with things like repatriation, giving objects back to the communities uh, that want them. If now the, the museum or institution can have a digital version that they can show visitors, if mm -hmm. the group who the object's from is okay with that, like we always mm -hmm. have to have consent, um, then, then why not do that? Why not give yeah. the object back? And it doesn't have to be boohoo, now we can't show it anymore. You can. We yeah. just have to think the experience well and it's even better because when it's a physical object behind a glass box you can't like pick it up and move it the way that you could if you had like a 3d ar object so actually you're like if anything improving the experience over having the static object because now like you get to pick it up you get to like you know pretend to throw the atlatl or whatever you know um and yeah so it's not even i I really like that idea because it gets away from this. Everybody's, there's a tendency to think of repatriation as like a loss to the scientific community. And it's like, okay, not only is it not a loss of like scientific data, it's actually like, we're not losing anything for the museums. And maybe it's actually, we're maybe improving something. Maybe we're, we're being tied down to what a museum can be by these physical objects. And yeah. why do we even need them? Absolutely. Like you could see it in way higher resolution. You could zoom in on the object. You could see the inside. You could see a video of how it was likely made. Um, there could be, uh, you know, zoom ins and scavenger hunt elements. Like, did you notice this thing? And that makes especially topics like ceramics and pottery so much mm -hmm. more interesting for the general public who may just be like, well, I have a vase at home. Yeah. Why is museum i hear that question all the time <laughs> why is this here why is this important um yeah. but when you can point out those details uh without forcing them to read a little tiny card that's only in one language it's just so much more powerful <laughs> tell yeah. me a story like that's yeah. what it's all about it's not just not telling me what this is you know didactically but tell me a story yeah, the the storytelling aspect it, it, that reminds me of something you said earlier, Lauren, about how people going on that tour, you know, it, it was what like a forty five minute tour, and people were talking about it for two hours, and that's the kind of thing is is like it, you can have stories, but you can also have a dialogue about it, and it's much more dynamic, it's much more engaging, it's like a, an actual like living culture that you're participating in you know, by experiencing it and seeing it and being able to manipulate it digitally and stuff like that is, is, this is really cool. Yeah. What's cool. So something um, really neat with the technology that I think is, is pretty unique to art glass is that you can do create group tours. So you can create a tour that a guide is leading, uh, but all say 30, 10, 40 participants are receiving the same content at the same time. Um, so I just love that. You can design where people can go at their own pace uh, or for a group experience. And I just love that because I don't know if you've ever been on a behind the scenes or a factory tour anywhere. And if you're at the back of the crowd, you probably can't hear everything yeah. 
You can't hear the joke the guide said that everyone's laughing about. You can't really see what he's pointing at. Um, so it democratizes the group tour experience also. <laughs> yeah, nobody misses out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, FOMO is hearing, so that would be great because if I'm not like the person standing right up front, I will not hear you. Although if it's like any kind of like history tour, I'm usually all, the one standing right up front. But for other people, uh, it would be nice to to hear what the uh, tour guide is saying. Yeah, exactly. And for kids, keeping them all on task, you know, they're mm -hmm. all learning the same thing at the same time. But adults, you have to keep adults on task. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. and you mentioned... Um, like the scavenger hunt idea earlier and like there's a lot of uh, opportunity to engage with children with this uh and i know you were talking about like the under 40 over 40 like demographics but did you look at all did you break those age groups down at all like smaller and see like what like how younger kids are reacting to this kind of um technology that is such a good question. So we are actively gathering that data, but we've been working with some different sites uh, such as Sea Life in Charlotte, Concord, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And um, their target audience is typically families, including really young children. So what mm -hmm. we developed there is a tour that is hybrid where there's a glasses tour for everyone, you know, maybe ages five and up. But if you're under five years old, wearing AR glasses is probably not something that's going to fit on your head. And I like to say you barely understand reality at that age. So adding <laughs> a is a little confusing. So we actually put a, a complimentary tablet-based experience for those kids. And an AR experience can be on a tablet, a smartphone, or on AR glasses. It can be on any of those things. It's just using the device's camera lens to still see reality and add things to it. So, so that's what we've um, found is that for kids, a lot of the time, the tablet-based experience is best. And as far as the data on the specific age groups, um, the team at the Denver Art Museum, uh, specifically led by uh, Lindsay Ginshaft, um, just one of my favorite people, they have been working on a project specifically for two to six-year-olds. And they have a youth advisory group that comes to the museum every month and tests out the latest iteration of the tour that they're creating. And <laughs> they're, testing, they're testing out and proving out these, these concepts. So we're actually possibly paving the way for how do really young people learn using AR technology? Because I don't think there have been like a lot of studies. It's all been really hypothetical and this would be great and we should do this. But now we have folks on the ground actually testing that. And um, one of the learnings they found was the original way they built the AR experience as a scavenger hunt was really working well for the ages like six to 12 group. Um, but the target for this particular project was ages two to five. So they mm. were able to make a copy of that tour, save it for when they're going to get back to the older kids and peel it back and, and, and think about the learning concepts that are best for those really young ages. So now they've peeled it back and it's uh, things more like, what is this sculpture made of? Um, is it made of water and sand? Are there other things in the gallery with those materials? So I, I'm loving just seeing that in real time every month, getting updates from them yeah. on different age groups are, are engaging with AR. Um, so hard data to be determined, to be shared later. <laughs> <laughs> that awesome. is so cool. The tablet, the little kids being on tablets didn't even occur to me. It was just like, 
makes it makes sense i just like had you can tell that i don't have enough friends with like young kids because i was like oh my god really is that really actually the i can't believe kids are that used to tablets now that like literally it is that like little little kids were better on tablets i would not have expected that i can't yeah I, I know I was around and I had to survive before there were even flip phones. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> but now, you know, I basically visit museums for a living every month. I'm going yeah. to new cities and, and going to museums and it, it's so wonderful. But the crazy thing is when I'm going to all these different places, I'm all able to observe families and how visitors are interacting with exhibits as they are and think about what can make them better. And pretty much every single kid or toddler in a stroller, even two years old, is holding the parent's phone and on YouTube during the museum. Because, <laughs> you know, they're doing that when they're on an airplane, in the car, and even at the museum. I'm seeing the kids, you know, on the parent's device. But for better or worse, this is a digital generation. And we could say, oh, let's take away screens. But here's the thing. They're going to find a way. That's what they're used to. Let's at least make it something educational that has to do with the place that they are currently in. That's what I'm a really big advocate of. Yeah. I mean, they're going to be holding onto the phone like a like a security blanket anyway. So yeah. <laughs> you might as well have something uh, in more educational playing. Exactly. And something that... Uh, encourages dialogue between the family, you know, and maybe has questions for the parent to ask the kid. And again, the scavenger hut, just bring them back to the place where they are, because I think we all have a, a hard time with that. Now yeah. we're at the table, we have our phone out, mm -hmm. we're you know, at a meeting, we have our laptop open, just how to be where you are and engage with that space. I think yeah. is really the where they are. Yeah. Like fully being present in an experience. That's, that's a big deal. Um, Lauren, I had uh, one last question for you. Uh, so you mentioned at the beginning, you know, you were going to Accra to see what kind of potential there is in archaeology for art glass. What what was your sense from from that uh, from Accra? Like, what are you feeling in terms of the directions that art glass could go in archaeology? It really got some new gears turning in my mind. And um, there were so many great conversations we had with you, with other uh, folks from CRM folks. And so many ideas immediately came to mind for people of projects they're working on, indigenous communities that they're involved with. Um, so I think there's there's huge potential there that we're going to keep exploring. And uh, something I'm going to be working on in the next couple of, of months is, is creating kind of content and use cases um, specifically for these examples in this sector. Because, um, you know, as I said, my background is more the museum side of things, but that is sometimes very far along the way and possibly removed from your side of, of the work, right? Like mm -hmm. what is going on? What are you learning while this is being researched, while these places are being studied? Just having more of that direct connection, I think is gonna be super powerful. Um, and again, part of the democratization, why wait until someone has a full-fledged physical museum? Why can't there be a an educational historic AR experience, even for something that maybe is going to be commercially developed, right? Yes, uh, like yeah. We there's a story everywhere and we should be able to tell it. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, without giving any project details away, it, it makes me think, um, one of the, one of the topics that's been coming up a lot more in cultural resource archaeology or commercial archaeology um, is creative mitigation. And so it's like, you know, if if there's going to be land development or some kind of infrastructure going through an area that could, you know, potentially lose the the archaeological site forever or, you know, permanently change it so that it's not in its state anymore, um, how do you do something that can add value to um the community whether that's the descendants uh of of that place or you know the the people around there the tribes that are affected by this um and you know talking about creative mitigation is something that i think we're just barely starting to scratch the surface on you know it's like uh you mentioned earlier how uh you know there's interpretive plaques in a lot of places and it's like you know you can you can only tell one story and you can only tell like basically a bumper sticker sized story with with a plaque it's you're going to have a cool diagram a small block of text and most people are probably going to walk right past it and not really stop and read it um but with what we're talking about with art glass and ar um you know that's that's got that's what has my gear spinning you know as as we've been talking through all of this i'm like wow there's so much potential for creative mitigation in commercial archaeology and land development you know so in places like you you pointed out it it'll be developed it could be something uh, that's not an archaeological site anymore but you could still have you know a rich cultural experience based on what we're able to do through that commercial archaeology process as we're you know working with the developers absolutely i think there's so much potential there and and i'm going to be honest i only learned the term creative mitigation a couple of weeks ago um but this is so perfectly lined up for that my understanding is that you know what a lot of people are doing the, today is maybe it's a brochure maybe it's a website and there's nothing wrong with those things, but just I feel like the impact of something digital that you can engage with using the device that's already in your pocket um, has has a lot greater potential to impact people more deeply um, and and maybe even get some buzz going for the site. Right. It's still something really new and novel um, that can help places get attention uh, if, if they want it. So definitely. Um, well, was there anything that we haven't covered about Art Glass that you would like to talk about? Uh, I think that that's pretty much it. We have an incredible team. Like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm stoked to have been on this podcast with you both. This is really yes. awesome. Likewise. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, speaking of like and subscribe, where can people find out more about um, Art Glass and uh, what y'all are working on? Excellent. So you can get the most up-to-date uh, information on what Art Glass is up to on LinkedIn and also Instagram. Um, not, we're also on Facebook, but, uh, LinkedIn and Instagram are our top two. So, uh, again, we're a small team. So if you're messaging us, it might be me responding. Um, so, so just ask away whatever questions you have. <laughs> 
<laughs> nice. And for anybody listening to this podcast, uh, there will be notes with links at the bottom. So whatever podcast player you're listening to, try and pull up the notes. Um, you should be able to just click on a link and, and go check out Art Glass directly from the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, Chris and Elliot. This was a, a pleasure. Likewise. Yeah, thank you was, so much, Lauren. I've got a lot of, a lot of ideas to think about. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you both. And I'd always be happy to come back and do another episode with my dog making noises also. Like I can, <laughs> they yeah. can our dogs cannot uh, compete. <laughs> <laughs>